Good morning again. Will you turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 88? Psalm 88 will be our sermon text for this morning. Before we read that uh, together, would you pray with me? Oh, our Father, this is your world. And the wrongs often do seem so strong. I pray, Father, as we come to this text and hear from you in your word, I pray that you would speak to us right there, wherever we feel those wrongs most strongly, that you would comfort us with the thought that you are the ruler yet. I pray that that thought would be a comfort and an encouragement to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 88. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalath, Leonoth, a maskil of Heman, the Ezrahite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. What do you do when the darkness comes? And it does come. 
The darkness comes. We live in a world that is ravaged by sin. The Westminster Shorter Catechism states simply that the fall brought mankind into a state of sin and misery. That is where we live. In the valley of the shadow of death, in the veil of tears. And so the darkness comes. Where are you experiencing this darkness this morning? Wherever that is, it's right there that you need Psalm 88. Now, that may seem a bit counterintuitive. You've just heard the psalm. Uh, Psalm 88 is considered the, the most depressing of all the psalms. One commentator begins, There is no sadder prayer in the Psalter. It's one of the few psalms, if not the only psalm, that ends on a down note. How can such a downer of a psalm help us to look up in the darkness? Well, here's what I think we will see in Psalm 88. Resurrection hope enables you to face the darkness by bringing to God your honesty, your questions, and your cry. Now, you may think that's a bit of a stretch for Psalm 88, uh, but I believe that you will come to see that this psalm is actually a hopeful prayer that opens the door to the resurrection power of God. I I didn't always see Psalm 88 that way, but thinking about it really over the past year, uh, but especially the past week, I have come to see it that way, and I hope that you will as well, that that resurrection hope enables you to face the darkness by bringing to God your honesty, your questions, and your cry. First, your honesty. Uh, This psalm was written by Heman the Ezraite. Now, Heman was apparently an incredibly wise man. Uh, 1 Kings says that after God gave Solomon wisdom, He was wiser even than Heman and his brother Ethan. What are these men, these two men who each wrote one psalm, what do they reflect on in their psalms? They reflect on the problem of pain. And the first thing that we are struck with as we read Psalm 88 is Heman's honesty about his pain. Heman piles up phrase after phrase to say, this is as bad as it can get. He doesn't get specific, but he just says, it's bad. My my life is full of troubles. He draws near to Sheol, that is to the grave, verse 3. Again, down to the pit, verse 4, another image for death. He has no strength. He is among the dead, verse 5. He's like the slain, those who have been slaughtered in war, like those whom God has abandoned because they are saved no more. Whatever his trouble, Heman feels as if he's he's a zombie, the walking dead. He's not dead, at least not yet, but he sure feels like it. And he might as well be. Even his friends have turned away from him. They have shunned him, verse 8. They are horrified at him. For some reason, his friends won't even look at him. Surely one of our comforts in trouble is our friends. We have people to turn to, shoulders to cry on, but not Heman. Even his friends have turned away. 
Worst of all, there, there's no way out. He feels boxed in, verse 8. He, all he can do is weep, verse 9, and his eyes ache from the weeping. He picks his description back up in verse 15 where he adds that this is not a recent phenomenon. All his life has been full of trouble from his youth up, ever since he was a kid. Do you ever feel like that? Like, like life has been a relentless barrage of trouble after trouble after trouble after trouble. He feels helpless, verse 15, surrounded, verse 17. His troubles, in fact, seem to be closing in on him. His trials make him feel claustrophobic. At some point, his troubles, he is sure, will overtake him. And again, he returns to his friends in verse 18. Those who should have comforted him have shunned him, not just his friends, but his beloved, his bride. Even she has turned her back on him. His companions have become darkness, meaning those close to him, those who were once a source of companionship and joy and friendship and laughter, now only add to the darkness of his soul. I don't know what Heman is going through, but it is as bad as it can get. He is a dead man walking, surrounded by trouble, boxed in by trials, helpless to do anything about it, abandoned by his friends, eyes aching with tears. Now, I think most of us know a little of what Heman is going through. Maybe your situation is not quite that bad. I hope it's not quite that bad. But your pain is real. Are you honest about that? As honest as Heman. You know how most of us are when, when bad things happen. We say things like, well, it's not that bad. It's not as bad as Heman. You can say that from now on, right? We say, buck up. Put a smile on your face, right? Think happy thoughts. No. No, don't do that. Be honest. Psalm 88 is not a pity party, by the way. Uh, Heman is not looking to wallow in self-pity. We, we tend to think that the options are stuff it or wallow. But with both of those, you end up really just being controlled by your pain. If you lie about it and pretend it doesn't exist, it doesn't go away. Moving on actually requires brutal honesty. To name our pain, our trials, are, are really, is really the first step in overcoming it. And so Heman simply expresses his pain and trouble. And yet we should note, right, that Heman, Heman does not overcome his pain by the end of Psalm 88. I mean, here we have a picture of a man in the throes of anguish, showing us really what we are to do with our anguish, which is not put on a happy face, but be brutally honest. And yet Heman is not only honest about his pain, he's also honest about God's sovereignty. To whom does Heman ascribe his trouble? Unequivocally to God. Not once, not twice, 
But at least a dozen times, Heman says that God is the source of his pain. Verse 6, you have put me in the depths of the pit. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. Verse 14, you cast my soul away. You hide your face from me. Verse 15, I suffer your terrors. Verse 16, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. Verse 18, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. And of course, you've got to imagine that the pain only increases because he knows God is behind it. Now, again, we don't know what Heman was going through. We don't know what people might have been involved. But Heman knows God is sovereign here. As Christians, when something bad happens, one of the first things we want to say is, it's not God's fault. And we look for someone to blame other than God. And I get that. I mean, we, we, we want to do justice to human evil. That's right and good and we believe and confess that God is good but we wrongly draw from that that God is therefore not in control when trouble comes but Heman is under no such delusion he knows that God is in control the 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 Lord of human pain as we sang he is the ruler yet if he is experiencing trouble it is from the hand of God Now, I realize that this can get a bit uncomfortable here, and I'm not even going to attempt to solve this tension, at least not yet. But let me at least state the tension clearly, because Heman knows that God is for him. Verse 1, the Lord is the God of his salvation. God is for him. God is his savior. God is his deliverer. God is his rescuer. Heman knows that. He is confident in that. And yet he also knows that God has brought his troubles upon him. How do you reconcile those two? We can't even say, as we understandably want to say, that God simply allowed Heman's troubles. But that's not what Heman says. Notice all the active verbs in the psalm. Verse 6, you have put me in the pit. Verse 8, you have caused my companion to shun me. Verse 14, you cast my soul away. Heman doesn't think that God passively sat back and allowed trouble to come to him. He believes that his trouble is from the hand of God. He's He's not blaming people. He's not exaggerating the role that humans play in his trouble. He's not ignoring it either. But he knows that even when human beings are directly involved, he knows that God is sovereign even over that. God is not the immediate cause of his pain, but he is the ultimate cause because he oversees all things. Can we be this brutally honest about our pain? It is real, and God is sovereign. Now, I know what at least some of you are thinking, which is that God sounds like a monster. Why would God do all this? Why would he allow, no, why would he bring this much pain into my life? 
Good. Ask that. That is exactly where you should be. That is what Heman asks in verse 14. Why? Why? And that brings us to our next point. Your questions. Now let me step back for a breather for a moment. Let's talk about Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is a fairly stylized and structured form. It almost always employs parallelism where two lines are put together in some kind of a parallel structure, might be developing a thought or contrasting two thoughts. But Hebrew literature often employs larger structures as well, like a chiasm. Uh, a chiasm is an ABA structure. Uh, it's, it's where you begin one place, you move someplace else, and then you come back again. Uh, it, it's the there and back again story in narrative. Uh, one person described it as crossing a mountain. You start at the base on one side, you ascend the mountain to the top, and then you come back down and end at the base on the other side, having gone through the journey. And, and the point of this structure in literature in Hebrew poetry at least, is almost always to highlight what's in the middle. What's on the mountain peak, as it were. Psalm 88 actually employs this ABA structure. Uh, there are three sections to the psalm, verses uh, 1 through the first part of verse 9, verses 9 through 12, and then verses 13 through 18. Uh, and you can see there's a, a clear marker at the beginning of each section with the mention of the psalmist crying out or calling to the Lord Yahweh. So each time he begins a new section, he, he announces his cry to Yahweh. In the first section, Heman describes his trouble. In the third section, Heman further describes his trouble. But what's in the middle? What is highlighted? What is therefore central to the psalm? Heman's questions. The most important thing in this psalm are Heman's questions. Now, I, I want to uh, remind you that Heman's questions are precisely because he believes that God is both good and sovereign. If God was good and not sovereign, uh, there would be no question why there is evil. God can't do anything about it. And if God were sovereign but not good, there would be no question why there is evil. God doesn't care to do anything about it. But Heman believes that God is both good and sovereign, and so he asks questions. Of course, we also need to notice that Heman's questions aren't really questions at all. He's not looking for answers. He's making an argument. He doesn't want information, he wants action. And his argument is essentially this. God, the dead are dead. And since they are dead, they cannot praise you. Let's look at his questions. Question one. This is verse 10. Do you work wonders for the dead? What is Heman asking? He's saying things like, God, do you part the Red Sea for the dead? Do you rain down manna from heaven for the dead? Do you send a pillar of fire to lead the dead? What's the obvious answer? No. God does those things for the living. God does not work wonders for the dead, but for the living. Next question. 
do the departed rise up to praise you? What does he mean? He means, he means these dead for whom you do not work wonders, are they rising up to praise you? And the obvious answer again is no. Look around you. The dead are dead. Not only do they not have the ability to rise up and praise God, they don't have reason to. God works wonders for the living. The living rise up to praise God because he acts on their behalf. God delivers his people from Egypt and they respond by singing songs of praise. God delivers them from Sisera, the Canaanite, and Deborah and Barak sing a song. God acts in works and wonders. It brings glory to himself and joy to his people, and so they respond in song. It's the living for whom God works wonders. They are the ones who rise up to praise him. And the next four questions simply confirm this. If the dead do not praise God as they lay in the grave, are they declaring his steadfast love? No, the living do that. Are they declaring his faithfulness? No, again. Are they making known God's wonders? No, remember, God works wonders for the living. Are they making known his righteousness? Not at all. The dead are dead. You see, Heman's argument is the dead are dead, and since they are dead, they cannot praise you. And he ends it there. You might think, okay, why? Why bring this up? So what, Heman? What's your point? He's actually appealing to God's glory. He knows the most valuable thing is the glory of God and the praise of God. And he knows that if he's going to argue with God about his situation, if he's going to say to God, you ought to save me, he can't appeal to his own human righteousness. He can't appeal to his own human glory. He can't say, God, I deserve better than this. He can't say, God, I'm worth it. Do something for me. He can't say, God, really? I mean, it's me after all. And so he says, God, the dead do not praise you. You see his argument. He's saying, God, I'm close to death. If I die, I can't praise you. I can't go to the temple. I can't offer sacrifices. I can't sing your songs. I'll be dead in the grave. Don't let me die. Act now so that I can praise you. Now, you might have some questions at this point. Uh, like, well, didn't Heman believe in the afterlife? What about the resurrection? Didn't he believe in that? Well, we can say a couple things for sure. Uh, one... Biblically, an afterlife without a body is always subpar, penultimate, lacking. See, we praise God with our lips, our voices, our tongues, our hands. And while we can agree with Paul that it is better to be apart from the body and present with the Lord, it's even better to be present in the body as we are present with the Lord. And the New Testament agrees because it says that death is a horrible thing, calling it the last enemy. And so that brings us to another thing we need to say. Didn't, didn't human believe in the resurrection? I'll think about Martha for a minute. In John 11, Martha's brother died. And she says to Jesus, you could have saved him. 
Jesus says, your brother will rise. How does Martha respond? I know my brother will rise in the resurrection. What's her point? He's dead right now. In this moment, he lies in the grave. I know a resurrection is coming, but what about now, right now? Martha didn't doubt the future coming resurrection, but the future coming resurrection did not take away the pain of present death. And so we don't have to read Heman as doubting the resurrection to come or not doubting it or anything. His struggle is with the dead being dead right now. God, how can I glorify you if I die? Of course, this makes verse 10 all the more interesting. There's maybe even a tension in his asking this question. He might even be afraid of how God might answer this. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Selah, you remember, it's, it's this little Hebrew word uh, that, that probably means stop and think about this. Pause for a moment and consider what you just said or read. And this Selah has got to be the most pregnant Selah in all of Scripture. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah, stop and think about this. Does God work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise him? Yes. Yes, they do. Jesus has risen from the dead. You know, Heman uh, may be worried for God's glory. God, if you let me die, how can I praise you? Save me now before it's too late. And then Jesus comes on the scene. He suffers abuse and rejection and abandonment, betrayal and justice and execution. And his people surely thought, his disciples, God, save him before it's too late. And then Jesus dies and is buried. And his followers said, we thought he was the one who would save Israel, but now it's all over. God didn't save him. Now it's too late. Except it's not. Because God worked wonders for the dead. So that the departed rose up to praise him. Where do we see God's steadfast love that Heman is so worried about in verse 11? Where do we see his faithfulness? Where do we see God's wonders? Where do we see God's righteousness? All of those things Heman says the dead do not know. Well, where do we see them most clearly displayed? We see them in God raising Jesus from the dead. God was committed to his son in faithfulness. God was faithful to his son. God worked wonders for his son. God was just and delivered his righteous son from a grave he did not ultimately deserve. God does work wonders for the dead. That's the answer to Heman's question. Whether he understood that fully or not, God does work wonders for the dead. And there are two things that maybe we should take from this as we undergo our own struggles. The first is, maybe counterintuitively, that suffering is purposeful. Heman is worried that death would mean God would not be glorified. 
But death not only did not hinder God's glory in the case of Christ, it actually provided the context for his glory to be known. Jesus' suffering and burial in the grave is the context for God to display his greatness in the resurrection. And can I, can I offer this proposition to you as the people of God? As you think about your own trials, and I pray that you can receive it as, as a comfort, even if it brings more questions than answers, which it may. Your suffering is purposeful as well. And what it will bring about is God's glory and your joy. You may not see it now, you may not understand how, but one day you will rise up and praise him. You will sing and shout over God's deliverance. Your pain will be to God's glory and your joy. You know, once the disciples saw a blind man and they asked uh, Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, no, no, you don't get it. You don't understand. It was not this man nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's why he underwent his troubles. When Lazarus died, one whom Jesus loved, he was told, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Jesus responded, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Heman is worried, God, if I die, how can I praise you? But what if God were able to redeem all of your pain, even your death, for his glory and our joy? That's what the resurrection proves, right? That God does work wonders for the dead. The departed do rise up to praise him. All of our sufferings, all of our trials, even death itself will lead to the glory of God and the joy of his people. Now, I, I don't know how that will work out in your situation. I don't know what that looks like. I'm not God. I can't explain it for your situation. But we believe by faith that as Jesus suffered and rose and brought glory to his father and joy to his people as a result, so our suffering will one day be undone and bring glory to God and joy to us and more joy because of the suffering. That's what Paul says, actually. You know that passage of Scripture? Paul says, this light momentary affliction. By that he means all your troubles, all your trials, all your pain is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Second thing to take from this, of course, your suffering is temporary. Put simply, the departed rise. Suffering comes to an end. One day God will turn our sadness into joy, our sorrow into gladness, our mourning into dancing, Scripture says. And of course, now that is true for us already in one sense, because in the resurrection of Christ, we know that death has been defeated, and so we can rejoice but it will be more true on the last day when the dead are raised and God wipes away every tear from our eyes. God will turn our sadness into joy, our sorrow into gladness, our mourning into dancing on that day. Weeping may tarry for the night, Psalm 30 says, but joy comes with the morning. It came with the dawn of Christ's resurrection, and it will come with the dawn of the last day, the birth of the new creation, and our resurrection from the dead. Joy comes with the morning. Resurrection hope enables you to face the darkness by bringing to God your honesty and your questions 
And finally, your cry. The first thing that made me realize there was hope in this psalm was the cry. Verses 1 and 2. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Verse 9, every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry to you, in the morning my prayer comes before you. The psalmist has not given up hope. If he had given up hope, he would be silent. Oh, he might complain, but he wouldn't cry out. Not to God, at least. And this psalmist is doggedly determined to not give up. His troubles don't seem to end, but he keeps crying out. Day and night, verse 1. Every day, verse 9. In the morning, verse 13. Which morning? Every morning. Every morning he gets up and cries out to his God. See, the expression of hope, even in the midst of his sorrow, comes through his cry. His cry of anguish. His cry of confusion, his cry of sorrow is a cry to his God. He could have simply gotten angry. He could have doubted that God was the God of his salvation. He could have gotten bitter. He could have drank his sorrows away. But he didn't do that. He cries out. Friends, there are really only two things to be done with our pain the first is to feel it. That's the honesty part. To be honest about our pain, we have to feel it, not, not medicate it away, not ignore it, not pretend everything is okay. But the second thing to do is take it to Jesus. Cry out in sorrow. Cry out in lament. How do you deal with pain and hurt? How do you, how do you get over past pain and hurt? How do you move on and heal? Well, you allow yourself to experience the pain and then you take it to Jesus. There's no more recipe than that, right? Take it to Jesus honestly. Bring your pain, bring your questions, cry out to him. When something bad happens, if you have a close friend or a loved one or a trusted confidant, what do you want to do? You want to go to them and literally cry on their shoulder. It's that expression of emotion that enables us to deal with the hurt and pain and move forward. There's no magic pill to take the pain away. We simply deal with it honestly at the throne of grace, trusting our Father, the God of our salvation. And we can do that because we know what even Heman knew, that our God is listening that God hears our cry, that he sees our hands spread out to him, that our prayer comes before him in the morning. One commentator pointed out that Heman isn't asking God to do anything except listen. Perhaps, that commentator said, Heman reckons that if that can be achieved, if God will only hear his cry, then everything else will follow. Everything will be okay because his God hears his cry. Friends, if you find yourself in the place of this psalmist, in the place of sorrow, confusion, and anguish. Take it to your Father. He loves you. He has proven His love in the cross, in giving His Son for our sins. He welcomes you, right? He has opened the way through Jesus to His throne of grace so that we can draw near. 
Bring your tears, offer your cry, spread out your hands, know that he is listening. That whatever you endure will not be wasted. It will lead to God's glory and so to your joy. Paul says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See, we have no idea the joy that God is preparing for us. Bring your heart to your Father in faith that the departed do rise up to praise Him. And as you trust in Jesus, that will mean you as well. Let's pray. Our Father, we cry out to you. We bring our pain, our trials, our suffering. And yet we we know that you have not abandoned us and will not abandon us because of your son, Jesus. We know that we can live in hope that as he rose, so we will rise. That our suffering will come to an end. And that whatever we have had to endure will on the other side of the resurrection be clearly both to your glory and for our greater joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.